0: This is Evidence-Based GI, and I'm Philip Schoenfeld, Editor-in-Chief. Today, we'll be discussing new advances in the treatment of eosinophilic esophagitis with Dr. Afreen Kamal of the Division of Gastroenterology at Stanford University School of Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Kamal. As usual, let's just start by talking about why is it important to have new treatments for eosinophilic esophagitis?
1: Well, first I wanna say thank you so much for inviting me here. I feel very honored to be on this podcast. I think the reason why we need a a newer medication and why this is so exciting is that at present day, we really didn't actually have any FDA-approved medications for EOE management. And for many of us who treat EOE, We have a handful of medications and dietary approaches. One is food elimination diet, but it's challenging to try to convince individuals to eliminate a diet strictly and then undergo multiple endoscopies afterwards to identify the food trigger. We have acid suppression therapy, but at best, sometimes it only works about 50 to 60% of the time. And then the third is steroids where you convince an individual to take a swallowed inhaler and try to swallow it in some way. And so this is a nice opportunity to have another medicine in our back pocket to propose to individuals who are suffering with this chronic disease.
0: Today, we're going to be reviewing a recent publication in the New England Journal of Medicine, Dupalumab in adults and adolescents with eosinophilic esophagitis. In this randomized control trial, they looked at Adults and adolescents between the ages of 12 and 18 that had eosinophilic esophagitis characterized by having greater than 15 eosinophils per high-powered field, as well as dysphagia, as measured by the Dysphagia Symptom Questionnaire. And they were randomized to receive upilumab sub-Q injections weekly or every two weeks or placebo, the primary endpoints at 24 weeks was histologic remission, meaning fewer than six eosinophils per high-powered field, and the reduction in score on their dysphagia symptom questionnaire. These were all patients who had previously been treated with PPIs. And I'd note that during 24 weeks of treatment, patients who were getting weekly sub-Q dupalumab, 60% had histologic remission, and there was about a 30% reduction in their dysphagia symptom questionnaire. Now, importantly, they also had that arm where patients got dupalumab every two weeks sub-Q, but that did not demonstrate significant reductions in dysphagia scores, and subsequently the FDA has only approved it for using weekly sub-Q injections when you use it to treat eosinophilic esophagitis. And before moving on, I should emphasize that this is a monoclonal antibody that targets a subunit of interleukin-4, and that ultimately impacts cytokine inflammation, and that's why it's felt to improve the burrowing or or scarring that occurs in the esophagus, reduces eosinophilic associated inflammation, and subsequently, leads to improvement in dysphagia. And one final quick note in that, as opposed to other biologics, based on the mechanism of action here, there really is no difference in terms of safety versus placebo this is not an agent where there's an increased risk of opportunistic infections or zoster or reactivated tb you don't need to do any pre-treatment monitoring of cbc or liver function tests our next big question then is we've now got this agent available for heosinophilic esophagitis, but there are other things that we use. What do you do in your own practice when you have a patient who has a new diagnosis of EOE?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And a lot of it is the discussion with individuals about the different treatment options, because I first tell, I, the first is education of letting patients know that this is a, unfortunately, a, a long-term disease. and And that's hard for some They're 20, 30 years old where they're getting told, now I have this chronic condition, A. And B, I have to be on whatever management as a long-term treatment option. So the first is really having a discussion about that and letting that sink in. Because then you can talk to individuals about, okay, now these are the different types of ways we can manage your week. And why that's important is compliance. If you tell a person, hey, you have to take this, but they don't un- understand, but I need to take this now for the rest of my life, or at least take something, then they they may not be as successful with managing their disease.
0: Let me just pause there. I think that's really important for our listeners. You know, it, there's a new publication about quality indicators and in the management of EOE, where I know you're the co-author of that and it was just published in the American Journal of Gastroenterology. And that's a real important basic thing to educate patients about. So, let me throw it back to you. So, I know for more discussions, PPIs are usually your first-line therapy, but if the patient isn't responsive to that BID PPI, I know you go over different options with them about what else to do.
1: Yeah. And so, I just like you mentioned, and I practice shared decision-making, I tell patients Today, you are the boss. My goal is to provide you guidance and to teach you about the different treatment options, but at the end of the day, you get to make the decision. And that's very important because as you mentioned, this is a chronic condition. And in our quality indicator study, you know, why we did that study was to find indicators that improve the quality of care and outcomes for these patients. So I talked to them that one option is a food elimination diet. Now, I think the conversation in California residents and residents other places may be different. I grew up in the Midwest. If I talk to individuals about eliminating dairy and wheat, many of them would say, Absolutely not. I have a different population around me who may have that motivation that I want to eliminate diet. that's really. Amazing. I let
0: also me, let me pause here. You know, as our listeners have heard from previous podcasts, I practice in Michigan. At a veterans hospital. And just to remind our listeners, you know, classically there's a six food elimination diet here of dairy, wheat, soy, nuts, shellfish. But that, again, classically you can start with patients on a two category elimination diet, but that's dairy and wheat. And yes, in my veteran population, having them do a dairy, wheat elimination diet is difficult to achieve.
1: And that's why shared decision making is so incredibly important because absolutely, if you come into the office and you tell a veteran coming from Michigan, hey, you got you to gotta cut out the bread and the milk, you could say whatever you want, but at the end of the day, it, it may not be successful. And so that's why you really got to get to their level to make sure whatever you propose, there's a high chances of success. And that's why shared decision-making, I believe, is so incredibly. So I talk to individuals, I tell them about the six-food elimination diet, but we have a tendency to try to eliminate the first two most common, which is dairy and wheat. And it follows subsequent endoscopies each time to really isolate if it's one food or multiple. And that's another
0: really important point we talked about for our listeners, that whenever you start an intervention for eoe that the improvement in symptoms or lack of improvement in symptoms may not correlate well with histologic data and i believe you said you routinely will schedule a repeat endoscopy three to four months after you make a change in therapy to get biopsies and see whether or not there's histologic remission
1: and that's important to me because I need to have that objective data. Whereas, yes, symptoms can get better, I also know that it doesn't correlate one to one. And if I want to improve the outcomes for these individuals, i.e. making sure that they don't come into the emergency room with a food impaction, then I want to make sure that when I start them on a medicine, that I can give them the likelihood of how successful it's going to be. But I also know that in the data in the prior literature, PPI, food elimination diets, steroids, it ranges about 50 to 60% sometimes in effectiveness based on the data you read. So I can't guarantee absolutely that these people will be successful. So I tell patients, anytime I make a change, I need to have an endoscopy at least three to four months out with biopsies, both of the proximal and distal esophagus, to really confirm that they are on, that they are in histological remission with that treatment.
0: If a patient doesn't respond to PPIs adequately, and they can't do a food elimination diet, then at least in the United States, our options are using a medicine like Dupixent, which is now the first FDA-approved medicine, or having them pretty much use fluticasone inhalers and swallow it. How do you explain those options to your patients, keeping in mind... This is something they're going to have to do long term to prevent those morphologic changes in the esophagus that are, can lead to pretty severe dysphagia.
1: Yeah. So I talked to them about each pros and cons. I do mentioned dupixin and in fact a lot of patients actually come to me and they say hey i've heard about this new medicine can you tell me more about it so i let individuals know that okay ppis aren't working now we need to try something else and i talk to them about the elimination diet i talk to them about the steroids i have a instruction where individuals get an inhaler but they have an instruction to try to swallow it and then I also have a discussion about Pixin, the Pixent, and new medicine that just got fda approved and it's an injection medicine but i always tell people that where we can always change a medicine we, you're never committing yourself But think about whatever you pick as more of a long-term treatment option. Because again, if I were to take a medicine for 30 days, sure, I could take it every day and I probably would be great at it. But non-compliance and actually I'll take it back, medication non-adherence. Medication non-adherence means that I'm not as, I I, want to take it, but I may not be as good at taking. That's a real problem in medicine. And so we always need to be cognizant about that. By informing individuals that this is a long-term treatment option. And I really want you to think about realistically knowing your own personality. Do you think you could swallow? Follow the inhalers to swallow it twice a day without forgetting it. Do you think you can inject yourself? And more importantly, if I'm talking to a younger individual, do you think that when you go to college or when you go out, and you don't have your parent reminding you every week, do you think you can really remember to take it? Because these are important things to discuss if we want to reduce the risk of fibrosis, stricturing, and these patients coming to the emergency room.
0: Yes, I have to admit my own experience working with patients has been variable when I try to teach him how to swallow the fluticasone um, from the inhaler. I should get a worksheet like you have. You know, what kind of things would you like to see in future research to better guide our management of EOE patients?
1: I think that's a great question. I think if you look at Specifically, say was dupixent. I think it was it was a great study, and in a clinical research way, it was randomized. It was placebo controlled. It was double blinded. It was a beautiful study. The caveat and limitations of any clinical trial is the long term data. In one group, they extended the data to 50 from the original, which is great. That's more information, and it showed that the effectiveness was still very high, which is wonderful. It's always interesting to see in EOE patients that some have a tendency to fibrose more than others. Some can have this disease for a long period of time and yet never really have a a, a food impaction. And so we know that there are probably something going on where some patients have more fibrosis. And so I'm curious if you did a subgroup analysis and looked at these groups of individuals, does Jupixin work better or worse on some population or not? And then I think in the health services aspect, the two important things that are always really important for me, one is cost effectiveness. When you look at the cost of the medicine itself, but as well as the alcohol swabs and uh the impact um just the overall cost and the second is compliance and as i mentioned earlier is that if an individual is young and then they leave home are they likely to be compliant and these are always important things to know and information to have whenever we recommend treatment
0: so knowing better which patients if we could identify patients specifically that are more likely to respond to an expensive medicine like Dupixent, as well as having longer term data beyond 52 weeks. Since this is a lifelong problem, that would be terrific. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Dr. Kamal. We really appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much for having me here.